Hello and welcome to the Journey Further podcast, a show where we learn from the people and businesses who are on a mission to do things differently. Today's guest is the author, BBC radio presenter, serial podcaster and former stand-up comic Viv Groskop. This discussion is all around Viv's book and podcast of the same name, How to Own the Room. Whether you're petrified of public speaking or maybe you relish the challenge but want to hone your skills, Viv is the person to learn from. In recent months, Viv has also been sharing advice on how to tackle communication in this more detached virtual world, or if you like, how to own the Zoom. This was recorded live and remotely as part of a Journey Further book club discussion we hosted a few weeks ago. If you learn something, please do leave a review in your podcast app. Please spread the word and please join the Journey Further Book Club community itself for more great content like this. I'm excited to hand over to our book club manager, Isabel, to take it from here. Enjoy. I have to start by asking you the question that we ask everybody on the podcast, which is within your work, what is the wrong that you want to write? Oh, well, the wrong I really want to write, I think most people will identify with. And that is our perception that we are less than we think. It's the idea that we can't do things, that there's always somebody else better than us, that we should probably say no to appearing on this panel because there's probably somebody else who's better qualified or we should wait until we're better prepared. Uh, It's very much about correcting that idea in our own minds that we can't do something or we shouldn't do something. So it's about sort of taking away people's internal obstacles. And for me, it comes from a really personal place and that's what I really learned through moving from journalism to stand up in my mid thirties. That was a big dream for me of something I'd sort of let go of years ago of like oh I'm never gonna I'm never gonna be a stand-up I'm never gonna do comedy I don't even know how you do that and I had some idea in my head that you sort of get chosen or it just sort of happens to you of course it doesn't just happen you have to work you you choose it and then you work very hard at it but when I first started out uh, 10 years ago I put so many obstacles in my own way I didn't see it at the time but it's a very difficult discipline and it's a very difficult world without you saying to yourself oh no that was rubbish why did I get that wrong why was that so difficult why this why that you know all this self-flagellation and that's definitely not unique to comedy I think we all do it in our different fields of work we all overly criticize ourselves we we overly scrutinize we we think and this is the biggest sort of mistake of all we think that by over-criticising ourselves, over-scrutinising, putting loads of pressure on ourselves, we think it's going to make us give a better performance. And we're scared. Like, if we don't do those things, we definitely won't have a good performance. Whereas if you can learn to relax, learn how to make mistakes, learn how to see things as a process and a journey, that was what was really key for me in stand-up was, uh, and I achieved it in one way through doing 100 gigs in, in 100 nights, consecutive nights, which I did in um, 2011, is if you turn something into a process and a game, then you can think, oh, okay, you know, tonight was a six out of 10, but I'm going back on tomorrow. So tomorrow I'll try and get an eight out of 10. And that one will be a seven out of 10. I was like, well, there's still tomorrow. You know, and it 
was more of like a game and a process and I knew that every day I had another day to correct it and I would always make rules for myself like after every performance I would note down three things I did well three things I would change and I stopped focusing on what I was doing badly or where it went wrong and just focusing on where I need to change so for me the whole purpose of all of this it's really about learning to beat yourself up less care less about yourself because other people just they really couldn't care less if you mess up or not it's really not that big a deal and in fact they probably will like you more if you mess up because it shows that you're human and people who mess up and then recover we love those people because we could all do that and that's inspiring so it's really about taking away whatever internal obstacles or barriers that you have yourself because god knows especially in the current climate there's enough physical obstacles out there anyway that are facing all of us you know the job market is horrific at the moment um, people's financial circumstances are difficult we're still facing loads of problems with discrimination and problems with diversity and inclusion there are tons of external barriers so don't put up even more by dissing yourself so it's really about you know not being too cheesy and oprah about it although i love oprah um, but it's I guess it's a kind of British way of being your own cheerleader. That's what I was really looking for with this, how to own the room, both the book and the podcast. Absolutely. Um, and I guess, so as you say, the book um, came out in 2018 and that was when you also started the podcast. When did you become aware that it, you know, were you always aware that it wasn't just an issue that you were facing, that was something that was kind of a blocker on you personally. It was something that many people, obviously women um, have got, as you say, external blockers on them at times. Um, when did you realise that it was something that other people felt as well? I think I became aware of it early on in my journey in stand-up comedy because so many people would say to me, once I made that switch from like quite a sort of straight kind of journalism job into doing something more, um, un much more unpredictable, though journalism is also extremely unpredictable and even more so now. But I, I made this leap into this very unpredictable world and people would constantly say, oh, how can you do that? It's horrific. Like, oh, don't you oh, don't you just want to be sick every time you go on stage? And I can't think of anything worse. And and I realized there are all of these, you know, stereotypes and myths about public speaking and performance that are transferable into everyday life because most people when they think about doing a presentation at work or well, not most people but some people they experience it in the same way that they might do if they were asked to do a stand-up gig they just think oh god no no i don't want to do that and the message i was getting from people about the myths and the stereotypes they had around this it just didn't correspond with my experience at all because i realized that once you start doing it very often and you get a lot of experience you see that it's all just really a process it's all just about learning and you can have actually quite bad experiences and in comedy you do have horrific experiences <laughs> because that is the nature of the work you know there's not even really amazing brilliant 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 multi-millionaire super successful stand-ups they've all died you know everybody's had a bad night everybody's been in front of a crowd that is not their crowd everybody's done warm-up for someone else who's better than them and the crowd just wants to see the person they paid for they don't want to see the warm-up so everybody's been in that kind of underdog role and it made me realize that we just we have such a burden of this fear 
of other people judging us, other people thinking that we're not good enough. And the reality is when you get in front of people and you do it a lot, you learn that those things are really all in our minds and they're not really important at all. What matters is what are you there to do? What did you come here to tell people? How do you want to make them feel? What are you going to do for them? And it becomes much of a, a not a selfish process where you're thinking, oh, everybody's looking at me and I've got to be perfect. It becomes about a gift. Like what gift have you got to give those people? And that was such a huge thing for me to realize that, that this process and this idea of doing stuff, and this could even be like a feeling that you have in a job interview. You know, what's the act of generosity that you can perform in that space? You know, it's to be open, it's to give the best of yourself, it's to look at the other people and think, oh, maybe they've interviewed 10 other people today and they're exhausted. Well, I'll just be patient with them and I'll really listen. It's always about putting the focus on the other people. So. That was really, really important to me from the start. And the reason this ended up being focused on women, so the book is called How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking, is because when I looked into this topic of this anxiety and nerves around public speaking and performance in situations large and small, all of the books that I found and all of the material I found was all largely by men, for men, about men. If, if it was a book of speeches, there would maybe be a hundred speeches and there'd be two by women. If it was about public speaking, it would all be about Winston Churchill. Um, there, were hardly, there was hardly any mention of women speakers at all. And I just, I'm quite a contrarian person. So I just thought, well, I don't really care uh, <laughs> what anyone thinks of this. I'm gonna do one that's only got women in it and be unapologetic about it. But I'm also quite clear in the book that this isn't really a women's problem because that's kind of quite patronizing in and of itself to say, you know, I'm not saying, oh, women have a problem with public speaking. They don't. Um, public speaking, it has a lot of myths and stereotypes around it that I want to break down. A lot of these seg into all of the difficulties that we have with gender in society and with power and hierarchy. But these things also impact any man who doesn't want to behave like an alpha, uh, anyone who is a new version of what power looks like. You know, we're living through a really interesting moment where, you know, pre-COVID, I'd say two of the biggest speakers, and certainly they've, they command the biggest fees, including even now um, on Zoom, um, I've heard of the six-figure fees that they're getting, Greta Thunberg and Malala. Now, 10 or 15 years ago, that was not what power looked like. And those people would not be booked as big speakers for corporate conferences. Now they are what power looks like. So the purpose of How to Own the Room was like opening up this idea of what does this new kind of power look like? And planting a seed in people's minds where they, and not just women's minds, anyone's mind, and of any age as well that they could think, well, maybe actually power looks like me. And maybe this is what leadership looks like when I do it. And it's not gonna look like something that we've seen before. That's what's so important is learning that 
this is going to be an act of creation, what your leadership looks like and what your speaking looks like. It's not that you need to, it's good to have role models because that can be really helpful and inspiring, but you don't need to have the role models to copy them and be like them. You don't have to turn yourself into another person. It's all about figuring out what makes me look the most confident, what makes me look the most comfortable, and that's going to look completely different in every one of us. Absolutely. Um, and I guess so we'll hopefully in the questions towards the end, people will have specific examples where they've um, where they've got their worries about their own room. Um, but regardless of the concern, what is your advice on the best way to get, your, get yourself in the right frame of mind before you go into whatever is your room? I think that preparation is really important, but having a relaxed uh, attitude towards it is really key. So I never want to be somebody who's suggesting, and there's an awful lot of really terrible speakers who, who don't prepare and just think that they can wing it. And I mean, there's actually quite a lot of people in the public eye who, <laughs> who clearly are doing pretty well out of winging it. So, you know, sometimes for some people, winging it might, might be valuable. And in some ways, I'd quite like to see more women just thinking, oh, sod it, I'm not going to prepare. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> but I personally wouldn't advise that. Um, I think being prepared enough so that you can let go of your preparation is the key um, I don't think that over preparing and trying to get to a stage where you think yes I've totally nailed this nothing can go wrong um, that's probably too much preparation but getting to a stage where you think yeah I've pretty much nailed what I'm going to say I know the first sentence that I'm going to say when I walk on the stage I know the last sentence that I'm going to say to finish. I know both of those absolutely word perfect. And I know that I'm going to cover these three points. If you can remember that and you don't need any notes and you can just remember that. So that's five things, your first sentence, your last sentence and your three points. It's pretty easy to remember that actually. You can speak for, I'd say, between five minutes and 20 minutes just with that. If your points are good and clear and you've got plenty to say and you've practiced it a little bit before. I mean, so for some people it might take quite a few times to get to that point. Um, for other people, learning what your trainer wheel, training wheels look like, you know, we, nobody rides a bicycle straight off for the first time, you're gonna have stabilizers. So if you're somebody who needs stabilizers, what do yours look like? And they might look like having cue cards, you know, having little prompt cards, or they might look like writing out your entire speech or typing it out and having it in front of you but disciplining yourself to only look down every so often or you know a brilliant tip from Michelle Obama's speechwriter Sarah Hurwitz only write on the very top part of a piece of paper that if you take it on stage so that way you're never looking down you're only ever looking at the top so take on extra bits of paper but only write across the top part of it genius tip like really simple but why do you know you often see people like really giving themselves a double chin looking at the bottom of their piece of lost paper. in the notes yeah so knowing what your your stabilizers are or your crutch uh, that you need you know for other people it might be giving yourself more permission to be spontaneous so you might sort of prepare two-thirds of what you're going to do or perhaps rely on slides i'm not a massive fan of slides but i know that they're obligatory in lots of companies Say so, so you rely on slides for two thirds of what you're going to do, but for the last third, you give yourself permission to 
talk about a point that has just been raised or something that you've just thought of or that refers to what a previous speaker said that day. You know, there's an awful lot that goes on and people will know this even in pandemic times of people preparing what they're going to do and not letting it be changed by what else has happened in the moment. So in normal times, you know, you might be the sixth or seventh person to speak and you might find that somebody else has covered all of your points. Well, then you need to you need to admit that you need to say to the audience, you know, I was going to talk about this, but this person already said this, this and this and this. And then you need to be able to say and that's made me think this. You need to change it. You can't just turn up there and just drone on about what everybody's already said just because nobody told you and you see that on zoom all the time as well of people not really listening to what others are saying and then kind of repeating the same point because they were sitting there waiting for their turn to speak but actually somebody else already said that so being very present to the moment and being very aware of where your contribution sits how it serves others is really important and that all really harks back to what I said before about not making it about you it not being selfish you know you're here to do something for other people you're not here to have your perfect little contribution that you've honed and is so amazing and you're all nervous about it and you've made it so great and then you get it out and then it's over and then you go home you know that's that's not what great communication is you know great communication is judging what is perfect for the moment and often you don't know what that is until the moment uh, that does involve uh, I think it, that a lot of that comes with age you feel more comfortable with that as you get older it certainly comes with experience and learning that it's okay to get things wrong it's okay to mess up um, but it definitely comes with a sense of sort of learning how to let go of your ego a bit and realizing that whatever speech you give, whatever presentation you give, whatever job interview, Zoom talk, phone conversation, anything, it's not gonna change the world. Like there's probably like three speeches in the last 100 years that have changed the world a really tiny bit. And even then not that much, <laughs> but that's like three speeches in the last 100 years. Um, most speeches or presentations or moments of communication that we have, they're just one of hundreds and hundreds that we're going to experience in our lifetime. And for me, that's always really reassuring as well, that anytime you have to do something, you don't have to think, oh, oh my God, my entire philosophy, everything I know has to go into this one interview or this one moment. No, it's just, it's a contribution. It's a small contribution. So keep it manageable for you and keep it manageable for everybody else. Yeah, and ultimately surely the way to to bring your presence to the room is to really add value to whatever discussion is being had so as you say it goes back to listening and absorbing and being involved in what's actually going on um a book that you mentioned within how to own the room is susan kane's book quiet um and we've talked quite a lot internally about um introversion and extroversion and i wondered what your tips were on when you have got something to say and you really feel like it adds value but there's somebody in the room who just isn't letting you have your opportunity to speak or is dominating the share of voice in a given conversation yeah that's a great question and this comes up all of the time I mean when I was doing a lot of events uh, for how to own the room I used to do a lot of live events when we could all be in the same room together for like 500 people and 
always the first questions w- would be exactly that. So some of it is about um, things that we call, uh, that, like there's a phenomenon called heap-eating, um, which isn't just conv- confined to a gender problem. It can also be um, to do with, you know, warring personalities in a room. It's when somebody takes credit for somebody else's idea. So somebody says something, everybody kind of pretends they didn't say it. And then five minutes later, someone more senior says exactly the same thing. And everyone says, oh, this is a brilliant idea, Graham. Um, So that's called heap eating. So how do you avoid something like that? And with that, I always uh, give the tip of advocacy. So this isn't just on you as an individual, a lot of this. A lot of this is about us looking out for other people. So be less focused on yourself and start looking around and seeing how you can stop that happening from other people because then that behavior becomes contagious. So if you see that happening to somebody else, that somebody's, you can see they're trying to get in, they're trying to get in, no one's letting them in. You can say, um, oh, just, just a moment, um, we haven't heard from Isabel. Isabel, did you want to speak? And you absolutely do not have to be senior to say that. And it can be such a relief to have somebody create that opening for you and I think in a lot of companies now that this idea of advocacy in meetings is becoming more common people are making agreements outside of the room like you know I'll be your advocate you be mine like if you can see I'm not getting a word in edgeways then can you find a way to bring me in Um, the other thing um, I advocate for this as well and this isn't actually this does work on zoom but I, I really love this in real life it's what I call pointless pen so if you were in a meeting you can hold a pen you need to be able to hold it very still and not be fidgeting with it like this right i'm, I'm fidgeting with it now you yeah. hold your pen very still if you then do this hold it up that shows that you want to speak it's very very difficult for if somebody is sitting there with their pen held aloft and an expectant face for people to ignore them for long And if you do that with your pen held aloft and you look at the chair and eyeball them, I defy them to ignore you. (laughs) So if you can have a pen and use that as you hold it between your hands, grip it and don't fidget with it when you're listening and that's your like listening mode. But as soon as you have a point, you can raise it. And then as soon as you're speaking, you bring it down again. So visual cues can be really helpful to break you through. And you can do that on Zoom as well, actually. And to break you through that problem of finding your moment to, in inverted commas, interrupt. Because I think a lot of people are very scared uh, of interrupting. Um, It's a sort of quite British thing as well, I think, that we're worried we'll come across as rude or abrasive or too aggressive. I think a lot of women are afraid of it. So bypassing it entirely by using a visual cue or by helping somebody else pull you in is really helpful because the kind of interruptions that are a bit undermining and don't really work, especially on video conferencing, is where you say things like, "Uh, I just, uh, uh, excuse me, if you're coming in with like, I just, or excuse me, you're already, or can I, you know, you're already taking away some of your agency. Uh, The slight disclaimer there is that actually on Zoom, having that moment of, could I just interject, if you say that in quite a strong way, that really won't get heard, but it will pull the camera onto you. 
what you want to be careful of in video conferencing is saying the best bit of what you're about to say <laughs> in the moment where the camera comes on to you. So that's usually the opposite. In real life, I would say to people, don't say, can I just say, or may I add something? That You can sometimes do that. Like if there's really, uh, it's urgent that you break through. If you say, may I add, or what we're not seeing, or there are three things we're missing here. Coming through with something very clear in a real life meeting, in a Zoom meeting to have a little bit of filler at the beginning, or even, you know, and I've seen people do this very successfully, just <clears throat> because people won't actually hear you going, <clears throat> but the camera will, and it will pull onto you. Um, you know, I've seen people do this in quite an aggressive way as well. Or it, 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 you know what it's like on Zoom if somebody has a dog barking in the background, the camera goes on. It dominates everything, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So be aware of that and use that to your advantage. Um, and also, you know, it's so difficult, this technology. Be polite with other people as well because some people don't do this without realising and oh, it's all very awkward. But, yeah, that's a very common problem, this idea of not being able to get your point across. I'm wary sometimes of suggesting all of these fixes i hope there's something that's inspiring in there for people and to try it out but i'm not suggesting these are magical fixes i do think that in some companies in particular with some hierarchies with some status play with some especially younger colleagues who sort of might in some companies be expected to kind of shut up and learn uh, in other environments people really like to hear from the younger people in the room because it makes them feel like it, it, in a patronizing way makes them feel cool but they don't actually get listened to like there are loads of really really difficult dynamics here that are often bigger than you are um, so you sometimes have to be careful you're not trying to fix some kind of gigantic cultural problem in your organization it may be that uh, you know historically people at your level in your company uh, or people in your kind of role uh, maybe they haven't been particularly listened to so it hasn't it's not personal to you it's not your failing and a way to fix it is going to perhaps be by having conversations outside of the room so you might make sure that you talk to the chair in advance and say um, I'm preparing to make some contributions at these this meeting I'd be really grateful if you could come to me or my particular area of expertise is this you might not know that and I wanted to make sure you know so that you can come to me so being confident enough to have those conversations outside the room can be really really helpful I think often people are a bit scared to do that because they think that they're sort of bigging themselves up a bit but then you just end up having that sort of really awkward moment in the room where somebody has kind of slapped you down without them even realizing so being honest with yourself about what you have to bring and honest with everyone else there about what you expect in advance of these moments or like if a zoom call goes really badly and you just feel like you sat there for the whole three hours or whatever and said nothing and nobody called on you and you were st sitting there with your pen pick me <laughs> yeah uh, then you know call call somebody afterwards and say that I hated that it was a waste of time I, I had a contribution to make but I didn't get to make it what can we do differently and just asking a question and asking it in a very sort of uncomplaining way that isn't like why is nobody ever listening to me 
instead you say I'm not sure this is really working what can we do differently is much more helpful absolutely and I think the the idea of advocacy whether it's advocating for yourself or asking others to advocate for you is incredibly important as you say um because one person isn't going to be able to you know enact structural change but if you have you know your line manager or someone who maybe is more senior to you um making sure that your voice is also heard you're then it's going to go a lot further yeah I mean I've seen it a lot of times and it is it's played out very strongly on video conferencing the hierarchy problem you know hierarchy is it's so destructive in organizations and often senior people don't realize that they're monopolizing and they're not listening they just don't realize it's partly some of them it's that they like the sound of their own voice and I say that as somebody who also likes the sound of their own voice but I don't have to worry about it because I don't work with anyone so I don't have to worry about monopolizing anything but partly it's that and partly it's I think sometimes they feel insecure in their leadership and they think I need to talk a lot I need to look as if I know what I'm doing because that's my job but if they have some other people around them who can say actually you're more of a leader when we see you listening or you're more of you know watch how Barack Obama used to do it he's a great listener and he would hold meetings where he'd hardly speak at all and then he would just come in at the end and say something really succinct so great leadership is really about listening and facilitating the voices of others but it's only really in the last kind of 10 years that we've started to say that Um, and there are still other forms of old-fashioned leadership um, alpha leadership um, you know people in power looking the same as they would have looked 50 years ago you know those patterns still exist and people still vote for them politically so this is a really sort of fragile interesting moment and we must all be careful of not taking everything on ourselves and thinking we need to fix everything in one meeting Uh, it can be really helpful if you are feeling a bit dejected about your communications at work or that you're not being listened to or your ideas aren't making it through. It can be really helpful sometimes to just take a break and and think, I'm just gonna be a really active listener for the next three weeks. And everything I go to, I'm just going to take notes or really watch intensely what people are doing who succeed and almost behave like an anthropologist. And just take the pressure off yourself because it doesn't hurt if you do something like that for a few weeks. Obviously, don't do that for your entire career, um, but it can help to just be strategic about that and think clearly something about what I'm doing is not right. How can I study this dynamic in this group and work out where I could fit into yeah. it? Um, and I think um, we haven't really got too much time to, to focus on it um, explicitly, but as you say, also the idea of watching um communications as well is incredibly important and you you share a study in the book um about how 93% of communication is nonverbal um and i think being aware of those nonverbal cues is also very important um in developing your own nonverbal cues of of when you're ready to talk and i, I love the idea of raising your pencil we're going to go into quick fire questions i've got three for you what did you used to believe in that you no longer believe in uh, I'm re- I really, I've thought about this a lot um, and I don't want to say this in a ne- negative way <laughs> um, and, I, and I hope you don't mind me swearing, but uh, nobody gives a shit about you. The opposite of that. So I used to think like everybody cares, everybody really cares about you and everybody is 
forming an opinion of you and everyone is judging you. They're not, they're not. They care more about themselves. We all care way more about ourselves than we do about another person. Um, you hear just extraordinary stories, like there's this amazing American coach who's a brilliant public speaker, Mel Robbins. I really recommend um, people follow her. She's got this thing called the 54321 method, which is all about like galvanizing yourself and getting stuff done and not procrastinating. She tells a story about wetting herself on stage. She actually wet herself on stage oh in front of thousands <laughs> of people. And it was like everybody's worst public speaking nightmare come to life. And she was so mortified and horrified and she just thought my career is over. Nobody noticed, nobody noticed. Wow. I mean, until she then told them all about it. That's the thing that I don't believe anymore is that, and I don't mean this as like, oh, nobody cares. <laughs> like, of course people care. Like people do care and we want things to be good and we want things to work, but they don't care in a negative way. People are not always looking to trip you up. And I think I used to believe that like, people are looking to trip you up and as long as you do everything perfectly, they won't be able to. Now that is an absolutely terrible way to live your life. You know, nobody is looking to trip you up. If anything, they're looking to help you up. But if you're right. too busy looking for when they're gonna trip you up, you're not gonna be able to see that actually they're trying to help you. And if this wasn't your mission, what would be? I have to say, this is very, very much my mission. And I yeah. did, uh, there's a new podcast coming soon that's something about um, the road less traveled and the path that you would have taken if you didn't do what you're doing. And I said, I can't go on it because to me, I always have to be doing the thing that I want to do, otherwise I just feel really dishonest. Um, but there's two other routes I could have taken, and one I sort of have anyway. The route I haven't taken was to be a, cr a cruise ship singer. I wanted to be like Jane McDonald. Um, oh, but wow. obviously that would be really bad in COVID times, so thank goodness I didn't do that. Also, True. I'm not a very good singer. I'm good karaoke voice at best. But the other passion of mine that I also do follow as a mission is celebrating other languages and learning foreign languages. I did languages at university, Russian and French, and my two other books are about French literature and Russian literature. And it's been a huge, huge comfort to me in lockdown that my book, The Anna Karenina Fix, which is about Russian literature, was translated into Russian, uh, into Russian last year. And this year it's been a bestseller in lockdown in Russia. So I've had loads of messages from Russian readers about that. Uh, so I love that cultural conversation of what can we discover from other languages, what concepts that other languages not have that we don't have. Um, and yeah, if I wasn't trying to lead this conversation about confidence and finding your voice, then I would probably try and be trying to force everybody to learn Russian. Um, so it's probably good that I'm doing this. Well, I, I, I follow you on Instagram and I love um, watching you share the Russian flat lays of your books oh, yeah. and all kind of different beautiful scenarios. The Russian flat lays are so funny. Like, I mean, the flat lay, for people who don't know what it is, it's this Instagram phenomenon of photographing something from above. So people often do it with books and they'll put like an arty fern or a flower next to the book. And the Russians are absolutely obsessed with it. And they're always doing these really intricate designs with... Um, a piece of moss and a cup of coffee and your book and I just I love it I just think it's so funny they're very serious about it as well and 
you know, I, I do speak Russian and I used to live in Russia. So it means that I can read their Instagram posts, which sometimes is really nice because generally they're, they're complimentary because the book's done really well. But when they hate it, oh my God, they hate it. <laughs> and they still tag you in it. They do, yeah. And they still tag yeah, you, which great. I find hilarious. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's been always an education. Amazing. And if you could recommend one book for members of the Journey Further Book Club, what would it be? This book changed my life and it's called Playing Big by Tara Moore. Playing Big and it's Tara Moore, M-O-H-R. It is ostensibly aimed at women, but I know lots of men who have benefited from it as well. And it's a book about not being a small version of yourself, whatever that means to you. She describes all kinds of really fascinating concepts, like something that she calls hiding, which is anything from working really, 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 really hard, but not actually putting your work in front of anybody who could actually make a difference, right down to like taking an MBA instead of just starting a business when you actually already have the skills to start that business. It's completely fascinating and it's really helpful. It has loads of exercises in it and it has about I think 11 or 12 chapters and she always says you know every time you read this book there'll be one chapter that really speaks to you of like the thing you're having the most trouble with work on that and then read it again in six months time and there'll be another chapter that really speaks to you and I've been reading it for the last five years I must have read it like 30 times and it is so true there's you're never we're never finished on in this work you know you I've interviewed loads of people for the for the podcast here in their 60s 70s and 80s and you're never done you know there's always stuff that you can learn there's always stuff that you've messed up there's always a skill that was really useful 10 years ago and now isn't that relevant so now you need to cultivate a new skill Um, and yeah playing big is really great at identifying the areas where you could make breakthroughs but actually it's you who's holding yourself back so what is going on there and how are you going to fix it she tells you exactly what to do. Wow, that sounds... I, I haven't ever heard of it, but I will be adding it immediately to my ever-growing to-read pile. A huge thank you to you, Viv, for all of your words um, and for all the work that you've done on this over the over the years. Um, it's such a valuable... The book and the podcast are such valuable tools, so... Oh, thank you. If you've already read it or you, you listen to the podcast, please do leave us a review. That really helps. Really appreciate it. And thank you for this conversation today. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the very end and thank you so much to Viv for joining us. If you liked that, there are three things you need to do. Number one, become a member of the Journey Further book club. This is a learning community where we share bite-sized content from the world's best business books. It's run by the fantastic Isabel and there's some great reads in the pipeline for later this year. It's completely free to join. We'll take just 30 seconds. Go to journeyfurther.com and follow the book club link to do that. Secondly, please subscribe to the podcast. We'll soon be sharing a new episode every week and have some amazing guests lined up and I'd love for you to stay up to date. Thirdly, if you could be so kind just to leave a review, I would love to hear your feedback. And this is also a great way to help other people discover the podcast. That's all for now. I will see you soon.